Sentire media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 50. Arrivederci Arabs, the Emirate of Sicily, part 2. We left off last time with the Fatimids taking over the rule of Sicily in the early 10th century and then bringing in the Kalbids to govern the island in their name. This was the peak of Muslim domination of the island. They were able to unite the population of Sicily, as is often the case in history, to face an external enemy in the form of the resurgent Byzantines, but also with the Umayyad dynasty based in Spain. The new kid on the block in southern Italy was the Holy Roman Empire under the Ottonians. Indeed, we have seen how, although Otto II was able to kill the Arab commander, he lost a key battle at Capocolonna, which allowed the Arabs to attack a series of Italian cities, such as Cosenza, Taranto, Matera and Benevento, in the south of the peninsula. By this time, the Arabs had been present in Sicily for almost a century and a half, and they had brought many changes to the island. The Fatimids, in particular, brought great innovations in agriculture, science, medicine, shipbuilding and arsenals. The island was inserted into a vast international trade system. Muslim geographers called that part of the world Iklim al-Maghreb. Interestingly, one of those geographers, al-Muqdazi, gives a list of the existing cities of Sicily, indicating for each one where they got their water. The trade system had oil, flour, grain, raw materials, weapons, furs, hides and cotton going out of the island and spices, medicines and herbs coming in. Sicily was at a vital point in the trade routes as it was placed between Africa and Europe. Large, rounded, 30-metre ships could be seen in the ports, particularly in Palermo and in Mazzara del Valle, but also along many other ports along the coast of the island. One of the most profitable businesses on the island was the slave trade. The auctions would take place in buildings with two floors, in which the most expensive and prized slaves were sold on the top floor. Slaves were used as waiters, doormen, chefs and bodyguards, and many were eunuchs and looked after the harems, which were not what we imagine as a place of depraved orgies, but simply a place where women would go to pass the time. Indeed, the word actually means sanctuary. Slaves could not only be sold, but also rented for odd jobs. They didn't all have a terrible time of it. Often, upon the death of the owner, the slaves were freed, and even sometimes given an inheritance. 
all of this commerce was done using coins that the Arabs had introduced. The dinar, a gold coin weighing about 4.25 grams, and a dirham made of silver and weighing about 2.97 grams. The most visible sign of Arab influence was obviously the architecture and the first appearance of minarets as well as low white houses. New and interesting food quickly followed, with the Arab pastry chefs excelling and leaving an influence that can be still tasted today, over a thousand years later, with the use of dried fruit and honey. The Arab men would meet, particularly on Friday, in their clubs that had very strict rules. They were not to make jokes, they were to be polite, had to wash at least once a day, perfume their beards, shave their armpits, and put makeup on their eyes. They could be seen looking at themselves in the numerous mirrors held by slaves hanging around the streets, repeatedly as they wandered around the towns. The gentlemanly behavior was then dropped completely in the evenings when they would head off to watch Indian girls dance and strip and drink black market booze supplied by Christian and Jewish smugglers. Otherwise, they would fill their time with cockfighting, chess and small game hunting. It's not always easy to tell to what extent the Arabs mix with the local population and in time how much of the Arab population was still immigrating and what percentage was locally born. Although in time, many masters and judges of the law came to be island-born. It's also hard to tell how much the cities themselves had been influenced. A totally Muslim city would have required a mosque, a school, a madraza, baths, hammam, market, a souk, the administrative offices, the diwa, and other areas of religious congregation. The only city that had all of these elements in Sicily was Palermo. Others were missing bits here and there. On an administrative level, the whole thing worked as a baia, a pact between the people, the al, and their leader, the wahil who was assisted by a judge, the Qadi. The question we now need to look at is, where was the place in all of this for the non-Muslims, namely the Christians and the Jews? In the eyes of the Muslims, they were all part of the Al-Al-Kitab, the people of the book. The two other monotheistic peoples were not actually persecuted, if they didn't want to convert to Islam, they would simply have to pay the Gidza, a tax. I said there was no real persecution, but there were a series of rules to be followed. Non-Muslims had an obligation to host traveling Muslims for a minimum of three days. They were not to ring bells or raise their voices, except in prayer. They were not to outwardly display their religion or try to convert Muslims to their faith. No new churches could be built, although the older ones could be repaired. They were not to try and stop the people converting to Islam. They were not to look like Islamic people, 
They were not allowed to carry weapons, and they were to rise in presence of Muslims, and they were not allowed to own Muslim slaves, and they were not allowed to own Muslim slaves. They were also not allowed to use saddles on their horses. So you could probably tell the non-Muslims as the ones with funny walks. I must tell you, one time I tried bareback riding. My father had insisted on it because, growing up in Argentina, he had often ridden bareback. I tried it once along with him. I had a little horse, he a large one, and his large horse decided to kick my little horse. It went cantering round and round the enclosure with me hanging on for dear life and screaming my head off. It was the last time I rode a horse. Anyway, in short, with all these rules, you had to watch out. However, if you follow the rules and were good, you could partake in the advanced civilized Muslim culture of the time, which also caused a high conversion rate. The language all these different people would have been communicating in varied greatly, with Greek, Arabic, and early forms of Sicilian dialect being spoken. The local population. Learned Arabic to speak with their rulers, but there are traces of Arabic scholars making fun of their bad grammar. This is more or less the picture that we have, what we could call the golden age of Muslim Sicily. As lovers of history, we know that nothing lasts. As is often the case, the causes of the downfall of what had practically become an independent emirate were both internal and external. We have seen that one of the external reasons was the rise of the Normans in southern Italy, which in time would spill over into Sicily. Another was the rise of the maritime republics that came to challenge the Muslim domination of the seas. Indeed. In 1062, it was Pisan ships that laid siege to Palermo via sea. The internal issues reflected the more general situation of the Muslim world. By this point, it was divided into three, with the Abbasids ruling from Baghdad, the Fatimids from Cairo, who also only nominally ruled over the Chalbids in Sicily, and the Umayyads in Spain. The latter area was the first to collapse into civil war, followed by the taking of Baghdad by the Seljuks, reflecting the rise of tribal groups all over the empire. These general political changes reached the island and were precipitated by an economic crisis, which forced the authorities to increase taxes, leading, obviously, to rebellion. The first came in 1015. Led by Ali, the brother of the Emir at the time, Gafar. The rebellion was put down. In 1019, a new tax reform caused yet another rebellion, with the rebels moving on Palermo and laying siege to the Chalbid Palace. The Emir was saved by the intervention of his elderly father Yusuf, who was able to mediate, convincing his son to step down in favor of his brother. While the ex-emir and his father retired to Cairo, 
Things held more or less until the 30s, when yet another clash broke out, and the unspecified people of Sicily called in the Zirid Berbers from Africa to help against the Calbids. And in 1035, the rebels and Zirids took Palermo and killed the Emir. At this point, a confused situation came out, with Hassan, the brother of the Emir, becoming the new Emir, but with his power severely reduced in favor of a council, while the military power was in the hands of the African Zirids. This is the moment in which the Byzantines popped up again with the invasion we have mentioned by the great general George Maniakis. Who was initially very successful and could have done a lot more damage, had he not been accused of treason by those envious of his success. He was called back to Constantinople. For a while, Muslim Sicily could keep on keeping on. Among the contingent of General Maniakis was a group of Normans, and they had been taking notes. At this point. Everything fell apart. The island divided into a series of mini-states that even went down to the level of villages in some cases. We can say that the final act opened up in 1059, when in Melfi on the mainland, Pope Nicholas II, recognizing the reality on the ground of the definitive Norman domination, declared Robert Hauteville, the Giscard, Duke of Calabria and Puglia. And Sicily. The fact that the Normans didn't actually have the island of Sicily was just a technicality to them. It would not be the Giscard who would become the protagonist of the downfall of Muslim Sicily, but his brother Roger. The excuse came soon enough. In 1061, one of the leaders in the various warring factions, Ibn al-Tumna, called the Normans in to help. Once they were there, they had no intention of leaving. The Arabs had sealed their doom, doing the exact same thing that had brought them to Sicily. We speak of the Norman conquest of Sicily. It would be perhaps more correct to say that they took advantage of a series of internal conflicts. Indeed, there were many Muslims in the Norman army, and in time they increased and became almost the majority. Meanwhile, the man who had kicked everything off, Ibn al-Tumna, died in 1062. Most of the engagements cannot really be considered pitched battles, but raids such as those against Rometta, Milazzo, and Messina. I said there were few pitched battles, but that doesn't mean there weren't any at all. One important battle was in 1063, Piana di Cerami. In the northeast of the island, legend would have it that a few dozen Normans killed around three thousand Muslims. This was in particular due to the fact that Saint George himself seems to have appeared to aid the Christian Normans in the battle. The numbers here could be in part true; there may have been just a few dozen Norman knights, but they were probably accompanied by a lot more Arab fighters. Indeed, other sources give completely different numbers. The last pitch battles of the Norman conquest in Sicily was near Palermo, the capital 
of the emirate, near a town called Mizimeri. It seems that, after the battle, Roger Hauteville used the Arab messenger pigeons to send messages into the city of Palermo to warn the inhabitants of their impending doom. The message was written in blood. The city of Palermo fell on the 10th of January 1072, just a year after the other Hauteville brother, Robert Giscard, had taken Bari, putting an end to the Byzantine presence in Italy. The great mosque of Palermo, which had been a Byzantine church and a Roman temple before that, was destroyed, and in its place a church dedicated to the Virgin Mary was built. The rest was a question of formality. Although it didn't happen overnight, Trapani fell in 1077 and Syracuse in 1086. The Muslims obviously didn't all disappear, although many were killed in the wars. We'll have time to talk about the Normans in Sicily and how the Arabs were integrated into the new state, but that'll do for now. In conclusion, the Muslim domination of Sicily was over. Their time there, however, would leave traces that can be seen to this day. Thank you very much to everyone for listening. I hope the audio quality of this episode isn't perceptibly worse than usual. I'm recording in a different location. But anyway, thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon donors, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Ed, Jeff, Joshua and Sean, the Matilde Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Benjamin, Maddie, Roberta, Scott and Y.R., the Marguerite Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Ben, Silane, Chris, Dean, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen, and Vincent. And the top level, Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, Sen. If you want to get in touch, you can send an email, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, you can click through to our social media Donate to the show if you want to via PayPal and look at maps and timelines to help navigate our country's complicated history. Once again, thanks very much. And until next time, arrivederci. I see you've been horse riding. Yes. Yes, I went the other day. Still hurts. I'm actually thinking of converting to Islam. What? Yeah, why not? I mean, think of the science, the medicine, the trade, the clubs and baths, the perfume beads, and of course, the Indian dancing girls. You're joking. I mean... Aside from the science, the medicine, the trade, the clubs and baths and the perfume beards and, of course, the Indian dancing girls, what have the Muslims ever done for us? Let's not go there, shall we? All right. What are you reading there? New rules for non-Muslims. Oh, no. What now? Well, 
you mustn't wash your socks on a Wednesday afternoon unless they're blue. Then you can, as long as you wash them with your underwear. Really? Yes. Also, you have to walk backwards if you go to a market on a Saturday morning. Unless you're intaged by turnips, then you can walk normally as long as you are wearing something green and have a friend called Ahmed. Dear me, it gets more and more complicated. Where's your brother, anyway? He was arrested. Oh, no! What for? Picking his nose with his little finger, left-handed. Sentire Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.